0: Father, we thank you that you have given us work to do, that you have asked us to participate with you in your creation. And so we ask today that you would open our eyes to the dignity of that, the responsibility of that, the wonder of that. And as a result, we would know more deeply your heart for us. It's in Jesus' name, and we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Most of the time, at least for me, it feels like even when we try to do the right thing, something gets messed up. Right? You've got good intentions, and then it all goes wrong. But but every now and again, we get lucky. Right? Every now and again, we do something right without even meaning to. We have what I call a happy accident. We make a really good pun without knowing it. I make more puns that way than I do like, the intentional way. We make a financial decision that at the time is just like, okay, and then it turns out to be helpful in a way we didn't expect down the line. We, we say something to someone that is exactly what they needed to hear, even though we just thought we were stumbling for words and actually said something pretty stupid. Every now and again, we have these happy accidents. We do something right without even meaning to. The same thing is actually happening in our relationship with God. Most people in the world do not recognize that they were created by the one true God, that He delights in them, that He is their ultimate delight, that He has laid claim to them and has work for them to do in the healing of this world. Even even those of us who, who do recognize that don't get it fully, and yet... Generation after generation after generation, millions and billions of people accidentally live out God's purpose for them, live out God's mission, we could even say, for them in the world without even knowing it. Now, I don't mean that they're accidentally fulfilling the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations, you've got to have some intentionality to that, or even that they're fulfilling the Great Commandment to love God and neighbor. What I mean to say is they're living out the first commission, the first commandment that sits underneath everything else God has ever told humanity. We can find that in Genesis 1, starting in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Generation after generation after generation, humans have been doing just that, being fruitful and multiply, filling the earth, and also subduing it, ruling over it, exercising dominion. There's a sense in which we in humans can't help doing these things because God has made us in his image, made us to reflect himself, and these are the types of things that God is doing, right? God is fruitful, overflowing in creative abundance that does not hoard life for himself, but gives it freely to creation, Right? The love of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit overflows into, into created community that shares in that love. And so we, generation after generation after generation, come together in love, and that love overflows to create new realities, to create fruitfulness. Yes, in, in families creating children, but also in extended families in friendships, and friendships and other forms of community. We, we've done quite a good job at this, especially recently. There are now 8 billion of us on this planet 200 years ago, there was 1 billion. We've gotten really good at obeying God's command in like the last 200 years. Now, the same story holds with subduing the earth. God is ruler. God is king. God is the sovereign over all things. And as those made in his image, we are also called to rule. So we have an ability and an authority to make something in the world we find ourselves in. Right? Even the most granola among us, like get this. We don't have a problem with starving because we think that plants are supposed to rule the earth, right? He has given us as humans a cultural mandate, a cultural commission to make trees into houses, to make tomatoes into salsa, to make sounds into symphonies. We are in a very real sense called to reflect God's authority over the universe by exercising rule over our little piece of it. But as we look around at what's been wrought from our rule, as we look out at the creation that we're called to fill and rule over, we might start to wonder, is this a good idea on God's part? <laughs> Was it wise for Him to invite us to multiply and rule over the earth? Because in a lot of ways, it seems to have gotten pretty mucked up. A lot of things within creation seem to be going not that well. We might have been doing what He intended us to do as a happy accident, but have we been doing it how He intended us to do it. Genesis 1 doesn't reveal much about the how. Genesis 1 simply gives us the commission to rule, but Genesis 2 spells out much more directly how God intended us to subdue creation, what He had in mind when He gave us this authority. And although there are lots of other hints um, in Genesis 2, uh, we're only going to have time for really to dig into one verse, the central clearest verse, Genesis 2.15. We heard it read earlier. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. To work it and take care of it. The two Hebrew words which sit behind those English phrases contain multitudes. Now, the first thing to point out is that those Hebrew words, through the rest of the scriptures, aren't agriculture words, they're priestly words. They talk about the priest's role in the tabernacle and the temple. Now, two weeks ago, we said that Genesis 1 reveals creation as God's temple, his dwelling place, and that theme continues here in Genesis 2. The work Adam is given to do is priestly work within God's cosmic temple, which means the work that we've been given to do is a priestly work within God's temple. Just by being human, we are called to be priests, all of us. Which means what? Right? That we wear a strange collar and have a job nobody understands six days a week? No. A priest's basic call is to represent God to others. A priest acts as a channel of God's work in the lives of others, reflects what God is doing and what they are doing, at least hopefully. Hopefully. That's why believers in Christ are called a kingdom of priests. We are called to be channels of God's work in the lives of others. But that didn't start when Christ came. We were called to be the priests of God here in Genesis 2.15, in the creation from the beginning. We have been authorized to represent the creator to his creatures, to show the animals and plants what their creator is like. We're called to rule as God Rules of God made creation abundant, our job in creation is to make it more abundant, more glorious, more teeming. And that's some serious authority. some serious authority, but it's not an unlimited authority. Because a king, right, within his realm has unlimited authority and can do what they want. A priest has derived authority, bounded authority. He or she can only do what they see the king doing. He or she can only act on behalf of the one who has commissioned them in the role. Priest might be a weird way to like say this in our culture because you think about collars and such. Words like steward uh, might make more sense. But whatever word helps you grasp it, uh, this role, this priest does not own the temple or get to do whatever they want. The priest has to be constantly listening to God and sharing with others what God has given them to share. The priest has to be receiving from God and then releasing what God has given into, in Genesis 2, creation. Now, there's a ton to unpack here, but at the moment I just want to point out something that you might want to go back and think about later. That this perspective on what it means to be human, on the first commission God has given us, obliterates the supposed divide between sacred and secular work. Adam had a divine role. Adam had a divine commission, and it never says he fundraised. You don't have to have a caller to have a divine calling. Computer programmers, full-time parents, salespeople, construction workers, law enforcement, just if you're like a backyard tinkerer, you are reflecting who God is in the world by doing those things. And you need to dive into that reality and own it. If you can't draw a line from what God desires for his creation to how your work releases what God desires for his creation, you're selling short the dignity of your vocation. You are missing the fullness of the glory of your priesthood. But then that brings us back to the question, like, okay, okay, I I see that. How do we know we're doing it right? Right? What will happen if we're living well as priests in the Creator's temple? Well, according to Genesis, two things will happen. The first, Genesis says, is that we will work the garden. Now, now behind this Hebrew term is the general idea of, of messing with something, improving it, making it better, doing something with it. Now, I, I think this is really important. Notice, when God pops Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the garden isn't perfect yet. There was moral perfection. There's no evil in Adam and Eve or any of the created world. But it was not perfect in the sense that it was not yet complete. It was not yet fulfilled. When you think about the Garden of Eden, don't think like English garden. Think like fruitful wilderness. It could be improved upon, developed, expanded, transformed. And in fact, it needed to be. It's more than okay for us as humans to mess with things God has made. In fact, if we didn't, we'd be falling short of God's command. Because as He is creator, so He invites us to create. He invites us to be co-creators with Him, to extend the goodness of the good things He made. It's part of what it means to be human, and God glories in it, and, and, and we've done it. Right? Just, I mean, taking this, this, this table, this Eucharist table, right? God makes grain. Humans have made bread. And bread is way better than grain. Right? Humans make wine which is way better than grape juice. This is the kind of work God gave us to do, and and we've been wildly successful at doing it. So successful, the geologists have now proclaimed that our current geologic age should be called the Anthropocene, based on the Greek word for human, the age of humans. Because we've now left such an indelible mark on creation, partly through atomic energy and things like that. That even if we left the scene tomorrow, future eras would not scrub away our existence completely. An alien civilization would clearly discover us now from the geologic record. We have worked with creation and made something of it and made a ton of it. But this priestly work is not just about working. God placed Adam in the garden to work it and... Take care of it. That's the second Hebrew word. It might be translated as, as keeping the garden or even protecting the garden. Part of our role as priests in creation was to protect the integrity of the creation God had made, to prevent the beauty of God's temple from being spoiled. We were called to exercise restraint because it's not our house, it's His. If we change it to the point where it doesn't reflect him, we've failed at our job. In other words, if we rule over creation such that it doesn't experience God's abundant generosity, we've fallen short. Now, there is absolutely a dynamic tension here, a working that doesn't ignore keeping and a keeping that doesn't prevent working. And it can be hard to kind of get in the imaginative space where, like, how would these things work together? I think Adam's first task is an illustration of the beauty of how these things can work together. The first thing he's given to do is is what? Name the animals. To name something is to recognize its nature, to distill its essence into a word. And Adam had real creativity to do that work, real creativity in observing and recognizing the essence of other created things, giving them, in one sense, an identity based on who they were. It said God watched to see what Adam would call them, but Adam was not completely free. He was not free to call a hippo Slim or a giraffe Shorty, just because he wanted to. That would have been an improper naming. He couldn't, in other words, just do whatever he wanted to because it suited him. He had to keep even as he worked. He had to create things, names, in line with the grain of creation as God had made it and not against it. Now, in that creative tension, it's easy to fall off on one side or the other and demonize those who see things differently. It's always true when you have a dichotomy. One of the most famous historical examples of this tension in America happened around the year 1900. There were two men who were trying to decide what to do with these vast tracts of public land that were scattered across the West that so many of us enjoy. The head of the Forestry Service at the time, Gifford Pinchot, believed that these lands should be managed for the sake of producing the most natural resources possible over the long haul. He landed on the working side of the working-keeping debate. John Muir, you might have heard of him, believed that creation had its own value beyond its value to us and that if we focused on producing as many resources as possible, we would destroy the beauty and integrity of the created world itself. So he advocated for much of the West to be turned into protected wilderness. And all this came to a head over a particular argument for a dam in, in Yosemite called Hetch Hetchy. And in the midst of that argument, these two came to a head so strongly that they ended up never speaking again. Today, we remember Pinchot as the father of the national forest system, and Muir is known as the father of the national parks. Now, you might notice there's a lot more national forest land than national park land, because it's happened many times in American history. Working and keeping became set against each other, and working won. Now, if I were preaching this sermon to an indigenous people or a a people who were afraid to make something of the world, who, who were tempted to worship the land instead of tilling it, who didn't make much of it, this next section of the sermon would be different. But that's not where we as a culture generally find ourselves. We are modern, technological, Western people who have become masterful workers and terrible keepers. And the signs of that are all over the place, right? We we see it in our technology that so often tries to overcome the limits of skin and bone, of time and place, that tries to remove our focus on right where we are to somewhere, anywhere else. We see it in the debates on on, on whether and how to what extent we can craft our own identity regardless of, 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 of what we have been given in ourselves. But we also see it within the creation, within the world we were meant to steward because God made a world that was so abundant and profuse and teeming with life. And if we were serving well as priests, the world, even as we, as we take from it for our own life, as we talked about last, last week, even as we did that, would still be reveling in abundance. But it's not. Now some of what I'm about to say might be alarming, And some of it you you may just not be able to believe for whatever reason, perhaps because it just feels unbelievable. But I can't control reaction. All I can do is put the best information about the state of creation that we are called to steward out there. It's estimated that between 1970 and 2010, just 40 years, the world's total population of mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and fish, like the big animals, was cut in half the population was cut in half. Now, we can't count every animal, but this number is based on many smaller, focused counts across time, around the world, that we can be confident in. Now, we also know there's always been a churn of species based on shifting climates and ecosystems, but we are currently losing species at about 1,000 times the base rate of churn. We're losing topsoil at a rate 25 times its ability to regenerate. Therefore, we're using fertilizer a lot more, 800% more than we did in 1960, which is why there's a dead zone of the Gulf of the Mississippi River the size of Connecticut. We don't have to fish there. We can go elsewhere to get fish. 90% of the world's fisheries are over sustainable capacity or being depleted more than they're being recharged. For as long as there's been a world, as far as we can tell, the highest concentration of carbon dioxide, a gas which which traps heat against the earth, the, the largest concentration we've ever had is 300 parts per million. There are no natural causes for this. It's because of our emissions that we are currently screaming past 400 parts per million. With no end in sight, no idea how far it'll go, and only educated guesses about what the consequences will ultimately be. Now, you may, you may very fairly disagree with exactly how we should tackle that problem. There's tons of room for debate there. It's quite complicated, more complicated than people make it out to be. But there's no theological reason why Christians should resist the conclusion that there is a problem. In fact, there's reasons for us to hold that more strongly because of what Genesis 2 tells us. The, the toxicity of this debate is, is uniquely American Christian phenomenon. The lead climate scientist on the UN's climate change panel for its first several decades would have, was a British evangelical Christian. Other countries don't have the problem with this that we do. Now, I know that, that, that getting into some of these things uh, will, will make you say, maybe you're saying it right now, man, and I, he just got way too political. We've said things from the pulpit here at IAC that some people read as left-coded, that some people read as right-coded. The the church is only captive to politics when that partisanship and those false dichotomies prevent us from speaking what we see when we look at the world through the Scriptures. And friends, when we read Genesis 2, I I honestly do not know how anyone who sees Genesis as authoritative who lives by these words and seeks to obey them, who longs to reflect God faithfully as his priest in the world he has made, can say with a straight face that we are doing a good job keeping creation, protecting creation, taking care of creation as Adam was commissioned to do. Church, we have failed. And we need to repent. Now I use that word repent very intentionally because it goes deeper. It goes beyond any political or technical solution. Those conversations are necessary. We can have some fantastic technical debates about how to fix this, about uh, doing more of this or less of that. We can can argue till we're blue in the face about fossil fuels versus mining for all those minerals for electric batteries, versus wind power, versus dams, versus solar panels. It's all more complicated than anybody makes it out to be. So if it seems simple, it's not. We, We can talk about the need to consume more wisely and sustainably to stop acting like Colorado should grow grass like Kentucky. Right, we can talk about, honestly, one of the biggest, just to consume less overall. Right, why it does no good to be like my friend who told me he loved Patagonia, the, the, the clothing company, right? That massive commitment to sustainability. He loved Patagonia's commitment to sustainability so much that he has $3,000 worth of coats in his closet that he never wears. Like, just don't buy the coats, man. Like, if we're going to have this many people on the earth, we're gonna to have to live more simply, more carefully, more restrained, but, but, but all that only comes from becoming more aware of our vocation to keep. Because you see, all those technical conversations do not replace the need and necessity for repentance. Because if Genesis is true, is if this is our vocation, the real problem is not technical, it is spiritual. The problem is that our relationship with creation is broken. We are flourishing while creation flounders because we've acted like kings instead of priests. We've acted like authoritarians instead of stewards. We have succumbed to this temptation that just because we can take something means we should. That just because we can consume this, that we should because it makes our lives a little bit easier. Friends, that's the voice of the serpent in the garden. That is the voice of greed and selfishness, not the voice of the spirit. Our relationship with creation is broken. And the only way to heal it is by healing our relationship with the creator. The only way to heal anything in this world is to receive the good news, the gospel of who He is and what He's done for us. And, friends, that gospel is still present here. I know this conversation, when you get into it, can, can feel very overwhelming. But there is good news here. Because even though we have failed in our leadership in creation, God has not failed in his leadership of us. It is still true and has always been true that God does not greedily hoard things from us, that God does not fill himself at our expense, that God does not suck us dry for his own flourishing. What does God do? He gives and he gives and he gives and he gives. He uses his power and authority for the sake of generosity. Right? He uses his strength to supply the needs of others, even at his own expense. We see this in the scriptures from beginning to end. In creation, he carves out this space for us to reign alongside him. That's crazy. When we use that authority that he gave us against him, God sacrificed himself in the Son so that we might have life to the full. And he continues to give good gifts, none greater than his Holy Spirit, so that we might begin to actually live this out, begin to reflect him like we were meant to. His rule over us has never stopped, and it shows us how to rule, and at the same time enables us to rule in the right way, as those who give life more than we take it, as those who use our power and authority for flourishing. Friends, there is gospel here that we need to receive afresh. And it's not a gospel just for those on one side of the political spectrum. It's for the whole church. If you've been here for an Ash Wednesday service, which is the service that begins the season of Lent, uh, the whole church prays a prayer, a long confession from the Book of Common Prayer that's pretty comprehensive. And, And in that, the whole church prays, not just one side for our wastefulness and misuse of your creation and our lack of concern for those who come after us. Lord, have mercy upon us. What I want to remind us of today is that the Lord has had mercy on us. That there is good news here, that whether we realize it or not, whether we know that we're in need of it or not, he has had mercy and he will continue to have mercy until this creation blooms into a new creation where there is a feast without end, where all things are made new, where our relationship with him, with one another, and with creation is put right again. He will continue to have mercy until we learn to flourish under his merciful rule. And creation flourishes under ours. Let's pray. Father, I'm just so aware today. That there are things that we all need to confess that we don't even know yet we need to confess. (laughs) That if we could see with your eyes the brokenness of all things would completely and totally overwhelm us. And yet, your grace goes farther. Your mercy is greater. Your abundance is enough to fill even that lack. So we ask, Father, this day to see your abundance. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us in all your glory and all your power and in all your grace. That you might fill us to become the priests of this creation that you meant for us to be. you would turn our hearts toward you, and that we would trust that you are still reigning, that you are still ruling, that you are still leading us to a world made new. May we participate in it now by your Spirit. Amen.